Paul, we saw last time, had taken the time to pull the Ephesian elders aside and to warn them regarding the future of the church. A church that in Acts 19 had been birthed with a tremendous influx of converts in a couple of years. The word had mightily prevailed, had grown, there was a rapid increase. But you know, when the devil works, he works after God blesses. He comes and seeks to pull down what God establishes. And that's acknowledged in the word of the Lord. And so Paul would call the Ephesian elders aside and say, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter among you, not sparing the flock. Even of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. False teachers did arise. And when you read Paul's words to Timothy, again, Timothy now based in Ephesus, you read these words and you realize that false teachers have arisen and they've sought to disrupt the work of the Lord. No less so today. False teaching is not a feature simply of the first and second century. Whether it be the denials of Christ's deity or some form of Gnosticism, those are prevalent in the first century but we have our own version of all manner of false teachings today in the professed church. Yes, there are degrees of severity. You think of the heretical denial of Christ's deity by so many of the cults, that puts them outside the pale of the Christian faith. They are not Christian. The same we say of the liberals. Liberalism and Christianity is not the same thing. Machen made that clear in the turn of the 20th century. Those who deny the virgin birth or the resurrection of Christ cannot properly be called Christians. And so false teaching still prevails in our own day. Not so long ago, there was this idea of what was known as open theism. That was popular in many circles, again, in a more liberal context. And the idea was that, well, God loves everybody. God desires that we would choose his love. And therefore, God's future and plans for the future are conditioned on our actions. It was this denial of God's sovereignty in an attempt to affirm man's free will. These things are still being propagated in the world in which you all live. There are the constant attacks upon the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Those attacks do not stop. They are the very attacks, of course, upon the very foundation of your assurance and your standing before God. Every form of Catholic sacramentalism is an attack upon the doctrine of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. Every liberal idea of works righteousness, I am not a bad person, is an attack upon the Bible's doctrine of justification by grace alone. These things are still being taught. You can go to a church in this neighborhood and you'll stand or you'll sit under a preacher who will say, you're a good person, do better. And you'll get that sort of theology being taught. You want a good life? Be a better person. Drives people to despair. We must affirm that these doctrines divide and they unsettle the church of God. Even in, again, more professed Reformed churches, in recent years, there have been attacks on justification. Again, I'm going to mention the terms to you without explaining them. Things like federal vision and new perspectives on Paul, again, are attacks upon the doctrine of justification by faith alone. 
Add to this all manner of subtle attacks upon the principle of the law of God, antinomianism in its various forms. I'm just simply telling you, there are a multitude of false teachers around even today. And it may well be that you listen to their podcasts, or you watch them on YouTube, or you have some other way in which their teaching is into your own minds. That is entirely possible. The devil is not slow to bring such false teaching to the minds of God's people. Now, before I say anything else, I am not for a second suggesting that this church is the only place that holds the truth. I'm not suggesting that for a second. If I come across that way, please remove that thought from your mind. I'm simply affirming the reality that false teaching exists and that it is imperative that, uh, that you as God's people and I as God's servant, that we together contend earnestly, zealously, fervently for the faith of the saints. We've got to be strong on these things. You see, Paul acknowledges the presence of all manner of false teaching in the church. Note verse number 20 of our passage. He says there, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, some to honor and some to dishonor. He's using here a metaphorical language regarding this house. It's a great house, perhaps some sort of stately dwelling. That's the idea he has in his mind. And within such a place, there are different sorts of vessels. Now, whenever I think of this verse, I, I, I have to go back to my childhood. I should say, my, my grandmother and grandfather on my mother's side did not live in a great house. They lived in a little row house in the industrial part of Balamina, uh, near where the factories were, and there's rows of houses, uh, perhaps, I don't know, maybe 800 square foot in, in, at the very most, small little dwellings. Uh, but there were those who loved the Lord in those dwellings, and my grandparents were one of those. And my grandmother was, was very particular, and she had those vessels for honor and those for dishonor, and you didn't mix them up. Of course, again, I don't know the culture here so much, uh, but back home, when it came to some sort of particular occasion, it may have been the Christmas dinner, well, the fine china came out. Those were the vessels for honor. They were used for particular reasons. And alongside those, there were particular forms of flatware. The silver came out on that occasion. You get the picture here. But there were also those things, and she had what we call a scullery kitchen around the back, a little alley kitchen. And there were parts and cupboards and the vessels were not for honor. They were used for all manner of things. Cleaning, cleaning corners and other parts. I'm not going to go into details of what those things may have been used for. But that's what Paul is saying here. Within a house, there are things that are used for the grotesque, unclean things of house living. And you don't serve your fine dinner on such vessels. They're used for that. Others are used for good things. But they're both in the same house. They coexist in, under the same roof. But you've got to know the difference. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's essentially saying to the Christian church, you've got to know the difference between those things that are for honor and those that are for dishonor. And Christian love demands that you know the difference and discern the difference. And keep away from those things that are for dishonor. See, Paul is presenting Timothy with responsibilities in light of this reality. And these are duties for every gospel minister. I 
certainly have sought to take them seriously over the years of my ministry. But they also in turn reveal what is beneficial to the Lord's people. That's what I want you to get hold of today. The pastor ought to be this. And there are several things that are mentioned here. This is what a a pastor ought to be like. Therefore, this will benefit you in these areas. Of course, the pastor's primary duty is to honor Christ. But also in their functioning, they will function in a certain way that is for the benefit of God's people. Let me put it to you this way. What sort of church should you be part of? What sort of ministry should you sit under? What is the sort of ministry that will benefit you in your Christian walk? Again, I say this, of course, in the context of the modern age where people choose churches for all manner of reasons, for this cause or for that cause, and they'll leave for this cause and for that cause, and there's all manner of confusion. And for our young people, again, I say so many times, you may leave here, you may go somewhere else, you've got to be clear on the reasons whereby you may choose a particular church. You've got to have these principles drilled into you. And so I seek to do so today, and I do so other times, that you understand what's the sort of church you should be part of. What governs the decisions you make? Now, today, I'm certainly not going to cover all of the answers to that question. But I will begin to look at the issue of regarding what sort of ministry. And that should be the first thing you think about. When you come to church, what sort of ministry am I sitting under? And so there are several things I want to leave with you. I don't think we'll get through them all uh, today by any stretch. But the first one is you should sit under a serious ministry. Now, confession, I have three S's here, okay, in the larger structure here. But serious was used purposefully and intentionally. You see, 2 Timothy 2, and the verse number 15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's a command to a serious ministry. The word study there does not have the idea of opening books and reading books. That's assumed. The word itself speaks of being diligent and hardworking. It is the idea of someone who takes their job seriously. You know, youth been about the world enough to see people in various occupations. And whatever the occupation may be, you can discern the difference between a serious person and a frivolous person. You can just see it in their, in their manner and how they go about their, their business and their work. Well, so it is, dear child of God, it is absolutely imperative that you sit under a serious ministry. You know me. I, I like to smile. Occasionally, I'll even tell a joke. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a place and a time for a, a cheerful heart, a merry heart. It's a good medicine. So when I say serious, I'm not suggesting for a second that I should dress all in black and never smile or say anything that may cause you to smile in the congregation. That's not the point. But what is the point is that the man of God, whoever that may be, whatever church they may be in, the man of God must take their ministry with the utmost seriousness. These are things that are of eternal significance. And we're not dealing with matters of trifling importance. And so it is not the place 
And I would say this, for a man of God to crack a joke every minute in the preaching, that where the whole climate of the sermon is dumbed down to such a level that people sit there going, I enjoyed that. But they enjoyed it in the sense that they were not overwhelmed with the fact that they're before the very Word of God. And so it is vital that you sit under a serious ministry. A man who cares what the Lord thinks, not what man thinks. Look what the text says. Approved unto God. That the man of God has that conviction in his consciousness. That he realizes it doesn't really matter what the people think about me. What really matters is what God thinks of me. You need that sort of ministry for your soul. That you realize that when the word of God must be said to your heart, that I will not shirk from that because of some personal attachment that I may have towards you. What matters above all is what says the Lord, what the Lord think of a situation. Approved unto God. That language is used by Paul in 2 Corinthians 10. In the verse number 18 where it says, For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but in the Lord commendeth. And just in passing, that principle is the most important principle governing your ethical decisions in this life. This doesn't just apply to me. Not free, it's okay. This verse applies primarily to me. But the idea of being approved unto God applies to each and every one of you. You've got to rise up every Monday morning, and wherever your Monday morning takes you, wherever you find yourself on that day, you must walk forward into that day, and you must say, what will God think of me in my actions, in my words, in my attitudes? What does the Lord think? That's what matters. Living a life approved unto God. You know, sometimes we talk to young people about peer pressure. Peer pressure does not change with age. Its form may come in different ways, but we all live under the desire, well, I don't want to displease my neighbors or displease the community. What does God think? And so under this idea of a serious ministry, there are three things that I really want to leave before you today. First of all, a serious ministry will be a ministry committed to the revealed word. Rightly dividing the word of truth. You want to be under a ministry where the one preaching is a man of faith, not a skeptic or a liberal. When I say a liberal in the classical terms. I'm not talking about attitudes regarding morals or ethics. I'm referring back again to the turn of the 20th century and the liberalism that came from Germany and the idea of well, the Bible contains the Word of God. Well, how would you answer that question? If I asked you today, personally, just downstairs, we're having lunch together, do you believe the Bible contains the Word of God? What would you say? I think you'd all say yes. But you'd all be in the danger of affirming liberalism. Because the liberal, when they said the Bible contains the Word of God, they were suggesting the Bible was not all the Word of God. There were parts of the Bible that was the Word of God, but it was not all the Word of God. It contains the Word of God. And so to back home in, in Ulster, when we are ordained to the ministry, we affirm our denial of that idea. Not only the Bible contains the Word of God, but it is in its entirety the very infallible Word of God. It's a tragic thing to sit under preaching of a man who doesn't believe the Bible to be true. And yet people do it. 
They sit on liberal preaching where the Bible is preached, but not with any conviction as it being authoritative and being inspired and inerrant. You see, there are certain Christian convictions that ought to be part and parcel of every church. This book is God's Word. No debate, no discussion. It is the very Word of God in the English language, and we praise God for it, and we live by it. And God has spoken this book for the good of the hearers. So we sometimes forget that step. We affirm the Bible is the Word of God, but the intent of God in giving the Bible is for the good of those who hear. And therefore, the Bible is the only authority for the church. It is the only rule of faith and practice that to depart from the Bible is to depart from goods and to follow harm and ill. But the Bible is for our goods. These convictions ought to govern the ministry of a serious ministry. The Bible is God's infallible word. And these convictions should be your convictions also. The things you hold dear. And so you come around the word of God with a desire, what should I think and how should I live? But secondly, not only will there be a commitment to the revealed word, there's also going to be consideration of the revealed word. You see, the man of God here is the one who is a workman. Being diligent, not ashamed before God or man, but rightly dividing the word of truth. Again, we've got to be careful. There are some forms of ministry where the minister has an idea in his mind. Monday, Tuesday morning, he's got this idea. I'd like to bring this thought to the congregation. And then with that thought in their mind, they begin to to shuffle through the Bible and try to find a passage that may fit their particular thought and their intention. It's very important that the preacher of God's Word starts with God's Word and his thoughts arise out of God's Word. He does not put his thoughts into the Word, but his thoughts arise out of the Word. It's a distinction there. It's an important one. And so what you have here is this understanding that those who are going to be faithful in their ministry, they're going to be those who are studying and being diligent as workmen, dividing the Word of God, studying and considering the Scriptures carefully. The word for workman here is the word for a laborer. It's often used in the New Testament in the farm setting. Again, someone in the heat of the day with the sun beating down upon them is sweating in the toil of the day. I don't do that but I hope we do labor. In terms of being diligent and considering the word of God carefully, the same word used over in 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy 5 and the verse number 17, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Laboring. Before I move on, I just want to say I'm very thankful here. I'm thankful that... I came into this congregation, this was almost six years ago now, and came into a climate where you were all very convinced and supportive of the principle that the pastor's chief task is to seek to understand and teach the Word of God. It's very easy, again, the modern pastor has all manner of responsibilities in the broader church, and the senior pastor can get tied up with all manner of administrative details and social expectations. 
I'm so thankful, genuinely thankful. I commend you in the Lord that you understand and you can support me in my task of being a student of the Word of God, thereby bringing the Word of God to you publicly and privately. So thank you. Pray for God to continue such convictions in your life, in the life of our church. Thirdly, there must be clarification of the revealed Word. The serious ministry, commitment to the revealed Word, careful consideration of the revealed Word, and thirdly, clarification of that revealed Word. Cutting straight is the idea of verse number 15. Rightly dividing the Word of truth. It is a term used, perhaps, again said last Lord's Day, in the joinery world, the carpentry word, of cutting a straight line through the Word. It's got this idea of accuracy. That's the idea. Again, you may have heard this back in your childhood. There were those in the dispensational camp who taught about dividing the Word of God into seven dispensations. That's rightly dividing the Word of truth. That's not what it means. It is being accurate and precise in your interpretation of Scripture. But the thought goes beyond simply having accurate understanding of the Word. The context of the verse is in the presentation of that word to the hearers. You know what verse 14 says? Don't strive about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Rather, if I can put that word rather in, study to show thyself approved unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so the idea there is not only that the minister has a personal understanding of the word of God, but that they also explain that with clarity so that the people understand the Word of God. This idea of accurately and carefully presenting the Word of God. Here, I, I must tell you something. You will generally know how much work I've spent in the previous week by how easy the sermon is to understand. The more work I do, the clearer the sermon generally is. And if there are times when you're wondering and you're a bit confused, it may well be because I've had a difficult week and distracted in some way or other. Just a confession. I hope you understand this. And so the weeks that you're perhaps confused, pray more diligently for the week that follows. You see, clarity is important. That I understand it and that I make it clear to you what the passage actually means. Again, I've got a caveat that to some degree... Peter tells us about Paul's writings, there are some things that are hard to understand. And so you may well be confused about certain things because they're hard to understand, not because I've not made them clear or plain. But however, the principle still holds. There is the need to make clear what the Word of God says. Accurate interpretation properly conveyed to clarify in the minds of the hearers what the Word of God means. That's my burden. Please pray for that. Pray that you'd all have that clear understanding of the Word of God's. Now, let me illustrate this. One of the key ways in which this has been difficult in the present world, in the present church, has to do with the understanding of the interaction between the Old and the New Testaments. Okay, errors are coming into the church today because of confusion as to how the two Testaments relate to one another. You've got some ideas of separation between law and grace. They say the Old Testament's law and the New Testament's all grace. And therefore the Old Testament has no bearing upon the church today. No bearing at all. 
what you actually see in the Bible is that the old and the new, they come together in law and grace. Because Christ fulfills the law, whereby we have grace. And through grace, we're conformed to Christ's likeness, so that we also keep the law. And so there's not this separation. There's a unity of law and grace. Now, we're not saved by keeping the law. We're saved by grace alone. But being saved by grace alone, we then gladly delight to walk in obedience to the law. See, all manner of confusion in these areas. There are some, and they're confused in the application of Old Testament promises. And they teach that you obey the word of God, and you will have a good harvest and a growing herd of cattle. Maybe not literally, but I've certainly had sermons preached in Reformed churches where the minister has taught from Deuteronomy or Leviticus and given the idea that if you're more obedient, you'd be more prosperous. That sounds like prosperity gospel. This is not being taught in prosperity gospel churches. This is being taught by those who are taking the Old Testament principles of Israel and applying them nationally in the UK or in the US and presuming the way to prosperity is in obeying God's word. Well, pastor, is that not true? Well, it's true in part. It's, it's true in the idea that God blesses industry and diligence. And it's true in the idea that, that generalities would teach that if God's people are faithful to God, then they're walking in God's ways and they'll prosper. But it's not true in the sense that you may get someone in abject poverty in Africa and they follow God and they obey God. And yet they're not seeing the material prosperity that you may experience in this place. American materialism, Western materialism, has caused us to go back to the Old Testament and presume, well, we're prosperous there, for we must be blessed in that sense. Israel is a unique nation, a theocracy under God in the Old Testament. The church is not Israel in that sense. This nation is not Israel in that sense. And you see how people can blur the distinctions in the Word of God. They can take the Old Testament and apply it in such a way that they can crush God's people and make them feel guilty. Be careful. Are there principles? Yes. You've got to carefully and rightly divide the word of truth. One example in this regard. Take the Sabbath day. Yes, I'm deliberately using that illustration today. It's relevant today. Because there's so many in the church who have no appreciation for the Sabbath day. The churches in our area who have no understanding that the Lord's day is the Christian Sabbath. And so they take the Sabbath principle and they say, that's Old Testament. That was a Jewish ordinance. The Jews kept the Sabbath. We're not Jews. We know the distinction, preacher, between old and new. You just said that. There's a distinction. Yes, there is. But the Sabbath is found in creation. And the Sabbath is found in new creation. And there should be no breaking of Sabbath principles between the old and the new. It runs all the way through from creation to the new creation without any break. And this, today, is the present Christian Sabbath. And therefore, the Old Testament principles of Sabbath keeping, they apply today. They're not to be discarded. You see how these things are so important 
a serious ministry with a desire to rightly divide the word of truth. That is for your benefit. It's beneficial to God's people to be under a serious ministry. It will help you to recognize error and will also help you to rejoice in truth. It is a doctrine that's according to godliness. You get back at 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse number 3. Again, regarding the false teachers, if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. You see, under a serious ministry is for your benefit and it will promote you in living a life of piety and godliness before God. A ministry with a little care for the Word of God, a little seriousness and application of the Word of God will lead God's people to be slack and careless in their Christian living. And so it's important to be under a serious ministry. Secondly, it's important to be under a separated ministry. A separated ministry. Back to 2 Timothy chapter 2. The last time we were in this subject, we dealt with the issue of the false teachers and that how Paul is telling Timothy not to be like the false teachers in their message or in their manner. Not majoring on disputed doctrines and topics, not hobby horse preaching and those things that are their, their pet loves, not entering into vain speculation, not causing strife and contention, not to be like the false teachers in the message or the manner. But beyond that, Paul tells Timothy, not only to be unlike the false teachers, but to separate yourself from the false teachers. Note the words that are used, verse 16. But shun profane and vain babblings. Verse number 19. Depart from iniquity. I'll go back to that verse in number 2. Verse number 21. Purge yourself from these. These are terms that denote what we know as the doctrine of ecclesiastical separation. The need for churches to be separate from false teaching and from error. It's an unpopular doctrine. You see, the age of tolerance in the world is the age of tolerance in the church. And so we're told in the world, whatever you are, you've got to be tolerant of others. And so that's crept into the church. That you've got to be tolerant of all other manners of teachers. If they espouse some form of Christian profession, well, you should treat them as such. No need for separation. Unity should be the desire. But here the words of Paul make it very, very clear there is a place for the church to be a separate church with a separate ministry. See, depart in verse 19 follows on from the words of verse 17 regarding the apostates. Verse 17 says, Their word will eat out of the canker of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred. And we saw that. They've fallen away, they departed from the truth. And then you get verse number 19. The foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now the interaction between verse 17 and verse 19 is not often understood. You'll understand it more when you appreciate verse number 19 
is taken from the Greek translation of number 16. You know the story? In the years between Malachi and Matthew, there were those who translate the Old Testament into Greek. The Greek Empire is overthrowing the world, and there was a desire among some to bring the Old Testament into the Greek language, and they translated the Greek or the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek. We call it the Septuagint. It was used commonly by the apostles, and they quoted. And here, Paul is using the Septuagint of number 16. So turn back to number 16. Number 16, of course, gives us the detail of the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. They were those who were rising up against Moses and Aaron. Verse 3, they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. It was an attempt to overthrow Moses and Aaron. They said to him, you take too much upon you. They weren't trying to help him. They were trying to undermine the authority of Moses and Aaron as the servants of God. This was a subtle attempt at rebellion and to undermine the authority of God in the nation. And so then verse number 4, Moses says, And when Moses heard it, he fell upon his face. He understood exactly what's going on here. And verse number 5, And he spake unto Korah and unto his company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his. That's 2 Timothy 2. The Lord knoweth those who are his. The Greek translation there, verse 5, the Lord will show who are his. And so the point of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, is the fact the Lord knows who's true and who's false. We may find it hard to discern, but the Lord discerns and the Lord reveals and he exposes Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Now, when you get across to verse number, nine, verse number 26 of number 16, you'll see the second part of Paul's quote. God's going to judge Dathan and Abiram. And so what does God say? Moses spake to the congregation saying, Depart, I pray you, excuse me, depart, I pray you, from the tents of those wicked men. Depart from iniquity. What's the Bible's teaching regarding the response to false teachers? It is to depart from them. The Lord knows who's true, and God's people must depart from those who are false. So back to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'm not going to do the details of all that must be said regarding the departure of uh, Korah and Abiram and Dathan. God judged it. And so verse number 19, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. In other words, the church is built upon a foundation of truth. God knows who's true, and those who are false, the church must depart from those. Everyone that nameth the name of Christ, depart from iniquity. It is a call to biblical separation. Failures in obeying this particular principle have a direct bearing on true usefulness in the church. The question arises, from whom do we separate today? And I grant this is where things get difficult. There are various ideas regarding degrees of separation. If someone shakes hands with somebody else, do we then not shake hands with that person? You go down to the line of degrees of separation. Things are certainly challenging. 
Some things that were very simple. Romanists and liberals who name the name of Christ are not Christians. And as a church, we affirm the importance of separating from such. And secondly, those who choose to cooperate with Romanists and liberals are so confused regarding the gospel, we must also separate from them. So that's second degree separation. No fellowship with Rome or liberals and no fellowship with those who fellowship with them. That's easy. That's not difficult because you're not dealing with those who are properly understood as knowing the gospel. And some will say, well, then you may need to separate from brothers. Surely that divides the church. But the Bible teaches at times it isn't necessary to separate from brothers. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. So there are those who may well be genuine Christians. I'm not suggesting that they're not believers. But they become confused and compromised in some particular area that as Paul says in verse number 6 of chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which you received of us, the apostolic tradition. Similarly, down in verse number, verse number 15 it says, or verse 14, If any man obey not our word, by this epistle, note that man, have no company with him, that he may be ashamed, yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So there are times we must separate those who are genuine believers in the Lord. But our separation is for their good. Our separation from them makes it clear that we have tremendous concerns regarding their compromise and their confusion regarding the gospel. You see, there are those who may fall short of true apostasy. They may not deny the faith. But they must still be called out and avoided because of compromised teaching. You see, please, please, dear child of God, we are in a church that believes in biblical separation. We're not perfect. We're not the only true church. Please, I've said it again, we are not the only true church. But we believe that truth is really very important. And we have a concern for truth. And a concern for your soul. And so as we can contemplate the issue of separation, please do not see separation as being unloving. But realize a lack of separation can confuse. And so from time to time, I may well explain or call out some particular error. And you may say to me, well, that person's a Christian. They're, they're a genuine brother, and I may not argue with you. But there may still be the need to realize there's an error in this area that you should be knowing about and should avoid. Time's gone. I understand today's lesson very much pertains to the pastoral ministry of this church and other churches. But the application to you is very, very simple. Knowing the truth and believing the truth is a matter of heaven and hell. And when I explain the importance of a Bible teaching separate ministry, what I'm saying to you is your soul is eternally important. 
And the way to know peace with God and to walk with God is to walk in truth and not in error. And to that end, your church really matters. Have we faults in the free church? Have our ministers faults and feelings? Of course we do. This is not heaven. And as there is remaining sin in the individual believer, so there is remaining sin in the church. But we do, before God, seek to strive to be a sanctified, separated ministry. So may God help us. And may you realize that this book is what matters in your life right now. Do you know Christ as revealed in this book? Have you put your trust in the Christ of this book? Are you living to please the Christ of this book? These are the questions of first and foremost importance. And may God help us to walk humbly with our God in this time. We'll come back to this matter next Lord's Day with the Lord's help. And let's pray now today. I'll give thanks also for the food. You can go downstairs and begin. It is our intention probably to meet up here around 1.30. Uh, those of you watching on, again, uh, the service will be broadcast at 1.30 or thereabouts. Maybe a little later than that. Uh, but thereabouts. And may God bless us this afternoon also. Eternal God and Father, we humbly come before you. We realize, O oh Lord, the nature of today's message. And we pray, O oh God, you'd help us to share these convictions and these principles. And beyond the understanding, help us to apply them carefully and wisely. Give grace. We do pray for our denomination. Pray for those men who must labor in the word week by week. Give them the grace, O oh Lord, to be workmen. Proved of God's. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Bless each congregation. We pray, O God, for our young people. That as they grow, we pray they would be people who have a burden to sit under the preaching of God's word. That they would not allow other church matters to govern their choices. But they would realize the importance of the very word of the very God of heaven. So bless us now. Bless our fellowship. Thank you for the food that we can enjoy. May our fellowship be sweet. May the food refresh our bodies. And then this afternoon, may we know your presence as we meet together around the word. Bless us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.